This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Let me bring in a guy who uh, knows a little bit about sports. He, uh, We've missed him the last couple of weeks. We had the Gretzky night. We were off, and then we had Thanksgiving the week before that. It's been so long that your team season has actually started. Yeah, we played the uh, played uh, the Steelhawks in their home opener Friday night, and it uh, went well for one of us. Um, <clears throat> it's going to be an interesting year. We've added some guys, and it's a tough league now. There's uh, you know we got a five team league, and only one team's going to miss the playoffs. And our first three are on the road, and my guys think we're nuts. Now I'm not quite as nuts now as I was when they first heard about it. So. We, uh, well, all your games are on the road this year, sort of. Yeah, they are. Well, that's what I said to him. I said, we got all 24 are on the road. And uh, the, actually, the only the only building we haven't played in is ours. Well, there you go. Uh, the, the Real McCoys this year not playing at the Great Meyer Arena while it gets some work done and some renewal. Uh, you guys are playing at the Harry Howell Arena up at uh, fi- corner of 5 and 6 in Waterdown. It's a fabulous facility. It is. Those, it is. Those, those new buildings. It's, there's some challenges, though. I mean, we played a quick exhibition game, so I guess we have played there. And uh, how to get people corralled and pointed the right direction and getting them, you know, this is how you pay to get in because it's like a, it's like a big fishbowl, right? You can kind of go anywhere, and we mm-hmm. can't have that. I mean, we we charge to get in, and you you can't let some watch for free and others, so we do some curtaining, and it went well. Our executive are an eager group, and we'll make sure that it works well, and, you know, we're going to do lots of charity stuff up there as well, So, uh, but we're still going to do the CHML um, teddy bear toss. And Excellent. So we'll do all the right stuff up there. It'll Excellent. Be, it'll be fun. Uh, you guys should be the first team to ever do a canned food toss um, for charity. I, I refer- <laughs> referees don't like that. I don't think anybody, because a lot of the time in the teddy bear toss, the bears don't actually reach the ice on the first throw. The people in the front two rows would not like the canned food toss. We'd have to give them helmets. <laughs> I, I refereed in Woodstock. This was a while ago, obviously. A mini stick night. And the uh, Woodstock Royals got their fifth penalty called against them in, the row, in a row by the idiot referee, which happened to be me. <laughs> and so these mini sticks start coming out on the ice. So I go over to the one side and I assess the goal and the things are coming out. And I said, you know, don't say anything about the sticks. And I you said this to the PA person? To the PA guy so that, like, don't tell him not to do it. And I get back. He, now, apparently he's mad at me too. He announces that uh, referee Don Robertson doesn't want any more mini sticks thrown on the ice. <laughs> Holy crap. They, I think we got them all. <laughs> well, you could save them for next year. Well, cause as I long knew, as they didn't have the year marked on them. I knew what had happened because I'd, I'd been there before when that happened, and it just doesn't end well. Now everything's coming. And they were wooden. <laughs> sort of like a boomerang, right? You know, the plastic ones the kids have now, so this is how long. They were all wooden. Holy crap. Anyway, so it was uh, – but it'll be fun. We're going to have a challenge with our um, – Frisbee toss because all the new rinks have the netting all around for safety reasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, we could do it because we probably won't have to give out a prize because nobody's going to be able to get the Frisbee to the ice. So That's we'll true. Just, yeah, we'll just pick them all up along the glass. It'll be fine. The I want to get on to uh, a bunch of stuff because we, we haven't been doing this for a few weeks and uh, there's a bunch of stuff I want to get to. But right off the bat, um, Hamilton Tiger Cats played on the weekend. And they're out of it. They can't win. They were playing Montreal that can't get into the playoffs. you got two teams that are playing for pride really only. And the Ticats go way, way, way up. I mean, they are just blowing the Alouettes out of the building. 
and I'm trying to figure out what exactly. And so you're you're a you're a guy who's coached. You're a guy who's been in this. So leave aside the football element of this for a second. Just let's just play the scenario part of this, and you tell me what's going on in the coach's mind. You're up by a million points. It's now going into the fourth quarter. You're late in the fourth quarter. There's maybe five minutes left, and now you put in Zach Caleros in as quarterback, a guy who you've benched for the last eight games, seven games, and he plays one series, and then you don't play him again. And it seems to me that almost, I mean, I'm following this, and I'm thinking that's almost insulting rather than anything else. That almost, unless he was hurt, and we didn't hear that he was hurt, unless he was hurt, that almost seems like it's more of an insult to the guy. It's like you're poking him in the eye more than anything else. Why would you do that? Is there any rationale for it? Not like, that I've was, heard. Was, uh... And then they put the third string in after that. Now, if there was some injury to Zach Caleros or if there was some equipment issue that I don't know about, okay. but I'm sure Drew Edwards would have pointed it out if he knew. I just, I just, I look at this and I think if you have a, if you have a veteran backup goalie in hockey yeah. and your starter is in there and you've switched to the starter partway through the season because you're switched to the backup partway through the season because he's playing better than the starter. Yeah. And you get into the one of the last games of the year and you're up 9 to 1 and with 4 minutes left you put in the backup. You put in the former starter. Let him play for 1 minute and then pull him back out. That that's almost to me like you're antagonizing the guy. I would first of all you ne- I would never do that. But if you did, I'd like to be the last to see of the guy. Because it would be embarrassing. It would be embarrassing, like he would, would it not? Go, really? You think this is funny? Like, you know, he would be pissed beyond belief because he would not be happy and you would look like an idiot. Now, that said, there's been a tremendous turnaround since June Jones came in and he's pushed a lot of the right buttons, which is why they're, I mean, they're playing much better for Sure him. they are. And so he made the decision you're going to go with Jeremiah Mazzoli, and that's fine. It's worked out well yeah. for him. But then, no. to me, you do one of two things. You either put him in for the fourth quarter, the whole thing. Or the, the second half thing. or something. Yeah. You, give the, you don't if, put him in for one series. If you're going to, like, uh, first of all, I don't understand at all. And I know I've had people explain to me, well, they're trying to win. They're trying to establish their culture of winning. They're trying to blah, blah, blah. Look, you've got Zach Caleros who's on a big contract that you're either going to want to play next year because Mazzoli is a free agent or you're going to want to trade. At this point, now that the season is gone, I know what Mazzoli can do, I think. I want to see if Zach Caleros, having sat on the sideline, can either enhance his trade value or can show me that he is better than Jeremiah Mazzoli at this point. I don't understand to begin with why he's not playing all these last three games. That's the first thing. Who, Caleros? Caleros. I don't understand why you wouldn't play him. They're going to say, again, because we have to win these games. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to win these games. In fact, this to me seems like one of those times. I remember the, Ron Lancaster is a legend in the CFL, and I have all the time in the world. When he was a coach, I used to love chatting with him, respect him greatly. The one knock against Ron Lancaster, in my mind, was that in the years, in his later years with the Ticats, there was one year when the Ticats were like 1-14 and 14 and he still trundled Danny McManus out there who was beat up. And you've got backups that you don't even know if they can play in this league. That's old school, though. But I know it is. But put the backups in. Let's see if they can play. Let's see if we've got something here. And I, that always that was one thing that I always thought, you know what? It's a former quarterback. And June Jones is a former quarterback. And you just wonder if there's a, 
Uh, uh, Are they like goalies? The, well, there's a fraternity of quarterbacks that says once you're in, you don't lose your job. But that doesn't that doesn't come to any conclusion as to why he would put Clarell's in for one. I don't understand yeah, that. I, I agree with you. I'd have put him in the second half and, and, and let him run up some points because I think it broadens your options to trade him. If he looks great, now you can turn around to the other teams and say, see what you see? See? That's see what you can get for this guy? Mean. But you're not doing anything for... So you're right. Put him in the put him in the fourth quarter. If he does well, you you know you maybe start in the next game. If if you're look, lots of teams do that. You showcase somebody that you're wanting to play. I know I know teams that, that play have guys in the lineup that shouldn't be in the lineup because their trade value goes up. You can't trade a guy to the press box. You can trade him off the third line. Years ago, has to be two thousand and four or two thousand five. I can't remember what year it was now because Jesse Lumsden, I think, joined the Tie Cats in two thousand six. If I'm right, I could be off on that one. But Jesse Lumsden was trying out for the Washington Redskins in the NFL. He got a tryout with them, and I remember going down to they were playing in Cincinnati for a preseason game, and Lumsden was supposed to get equal playing time with the other four running backs that were trying out for the team. And at the time, the guy who was the established star was Clinton Portis. He wasn't even playing in this game. They knew he was making the team. It was a four-man fight for the backup job. And each of them was going to get a quarter. And Jesse Lumsden went in with about 95 seconds left in the game. They never put him in, until the and which A, said everything you needed to know about whether they were going to give him a chance. He wasn't one of the four. But B, it never gave him an opportunity, even if he could have said, all right, I know I'm not your guy, but let me show you. Let me win this job. And, And the same thing to me as this one. If the game doesn't matter for anything, really, why do you not want to see what you've got with certain guys? Why do you not? You don't know. You know, and I'm not, look, I'm not going to argue, I'm not going to stand here and argue that Jesse Lumsden was going to turn into Tony Dorsett in the NFL. I'm not saying that, but you don't know. He might've gone out there and ripped off two long runs and suddenly you go, huh, let's give him another go and see if that was a fluke or see if he actually can do this. But you don't know. Here's another reason he may not have played. They didn't have any intention of keeping him. And if he played a quarter and was the best of the four and they'd already made their decision, why are they doing that? Well, because like he, you're risking the fact that the guy's going to show you up. He's going to run for two touchdowns, run for 63 yards, and the guy you're keeping ran for 17 yards. You've already made up your mind. So yeah, but then it wouldn't you can be the first time players have been misled in an exhibition. Sign him and trade him. I know, but sign him and trade him. Do something. Yeah. Or And again, if you're a good organization, and we've seen quite clearly in recent years, and I don't want to get onto the Redskins, that they're not a great organization. But if you're a good organization, you keep your doors open. And if someone blows your socks off, you go, huh, we did not see that coming. And Zach Caleros, to me, getting back to what we were really talking about, Zach Caleros has shown that when he's at his best, he can be the best player in the CFL. Yeah, He's not going to be the best player in the CFL when he's standing on the sideline. And I don't understand why you wouldn't. The only thing that, that and we talked about this last week, I think, Bob O'Neill, the only thing I can think of, is that they don't believe he can do that anymore and don't want to expose him. But then why put him in for one series? Why put him in at all? Yeah, that one that one's still a head scratcher, right, even to get involved in that kind of thing and and uh th- th- there there's more to it. There's more to what happened with Clarels this year, the coaching change. Um you know, we're not in the meetings. 
And boom, boy, his he had no life when June Jones took over, though. That was it. It was done. Yeah, that was done. And and maybe June Jones was bringing up to uh, the former head coach. Uh, we, you got to change these things up. You got to do this two games ago. And Clarice said, "I'm just, you know, you don't know what happens in the meeting rooms. You don't know what the personalities are. But when you sit his butt and nail it to the bench, and then let him play one series, if the message you've sent already wasn't bad enough, now you're kind of kicking a little dirt in the guy's shoes." We don't know, and I'm 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 basing this on the fact that he was not injured, and there was no evidence of an injury that I heard or saw. Or an equipment malfunction. So if if there was something, if his helmet broke and they couldn't get it fixed in time for him to go in and they said to the third string guy, go in, or if he has had been dinged up, then okay, fine. You were going to give him the last five minutes. It still, to me, seems an extraordinarily short period of time in a game where you're up by, what was it, 45 to 13 or 43 to 15 at this point? They all have a handful of equipment, guys. I mean, what kind of an equipment malfunction takes show for the whole night? I mean, the last No, but I'm saying if you just, if, if all of a sudden you go to back, get it back on and your chin strap is broken or something and he couldn't, wow. but, but even if it was, even if that was the case, you're up by 35, 40 points. Yeah. Why would you wait till there's four minutes left to put the guy in? It. Again, to me, it just seems like it was, whether it was intentional or not, and I don't want to judge a man's intent. That's a very dangerous thing when you start trying to to guess on what June Jones' intent was, whether he was being malicious or not. Whether he was, though, having the intent or not, it just comes across like it was sticking your finger in Zach Caleros' eye, and I don't know why you would do that. I don't know. Maybe Zach Caleros has been difficult this year as a backup, but we've heard nothing to that effect. So unless you're trying to embarrass them, I, I just don't get it. You're not at the meetings. You, you're not. Who we don't knows? know. I mean, these guys spend a lot of time together. That's true. And it's just not game day. It's ju- it just comes. Am, am I wrong though? When you heard this, when you hear this, if it's not an injury or an equipment issue, nope. does it sound like it's that, a bit of a shot? It doesn't make any sense at all to me. The last equipment malfunction that kept anybody out of a football game was uh, Thurman Jan- Thomas Jan- in the Super Bowl. Jan- Janet Jackson. Well, that too. <laughs> Yeah, that too. Oh, and, and she's still banned. And Justin Timberlake, who uh, did helped, the ripping, helped with the equipment malfunction, is apparently going back. But yeah. she's uh, still persona non grata. Well, there. he 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 actually provided the air conditioning <laughs> for her breast, and uh, he's coming back. Maybe the, I don't know if Janet. Jack, would, wouldn't it be something if she made a return visit as a special guest in this thing? I knew there'd be trouble when I brought it up, but I thought I'd be in it, not you. The F- the FCC people will suddenly have an aneurysm when they see <laughs> Janet Jackson show. Record this! Record this! Something's going to happen! You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, NBA season started last week. Don't know if you're a big basketball fan. That's not really uh, the issue. The question that I want to ask you, the thing I want to get your feeling on is, there are probably three or four teams in the NBA this year that are the only three or four teams that could win the championship. Golden State, maybe Oklahoma City, maybe the Cleveland Cavaliers, maybe San Antonio, but really it's it's probably Golden State. There is, there's not a lot of choice. The Toronto Raptors have zero chance of winning the championship this year unless... Golden State's entire team suffers a year-ending groin injury. There is no chance the Raptors can win this thing. Well, the Raptors can't get by Cleveland, so it's not going to matter, I don't think. Well, regardless, yeah. But Cleveland it, was the best in the East and got better. 
But even but they also in basketball you need to have the best player. They've got by far still the best player. Regardless, even if the Raptors somehow got by Cleveland, even if LeBron James got injured and the Raptors didn't have to face him, there is no chance they're beating Golden State in all likelihood in the final. So my question is, we've seen not to this degree, not to the fact where the Golden State Warriors right now, as Sports Illustrated wrote, you might have a hard time putting together an all-star team of the rest of the league that could beat them. Do we like this kind of dynastic setups in sports, or do we like parity a little more? I mean, I suppose the answer is you like it if it's your team. But by and large, for sports in general, do we like having teams that are this crazy powerful that are guaranteed to win, or do you prefer to have 10 or 12 teams? I think the only thing you can do with a team like Golden State is just appreciate how good they are when they come in and kick your team's butt, right? Because now in the West... Um, I was talking to a guy about it a week ago. And I said, you know, really the NBA is like there's an A division and a B division like soccer, but they don't run it that way because there are teams that have no chance to win the East. Now, <clears throat> the Raptors could win the East. They'd have to be very fortunate, and, and they may have to have one guy in Cleveland get a groin injury. In the West, there's one team that's going to dominate, but there's four, like you said, there's three, four, maybe five teams that can cause a lot of damage. So Until they run into the one team that will steamroll everybody. Well, yes, but and it won't happen. But the best chance for Cleveland or the Raptors to win, first of all, the Raptors have to get extremely lucky because, like I said, Cleveland was the best team and are maybe 20% better, and the, and the Raptors were behind them and got 10% better. If you do that math, they haven't got much much of a chance. But the only chance for the East to beat the West is if the, if the West beat the snot out of each other so bad and gets so physical that they're banged up. But the big team is so good and so deep, like their second stringers are starters everywhere else in the league likely. So you're right. It needs a year-ending groin injury collectively across the entire team. But the only collective way to victory is if they beat the snot out of each other and they kind of limp into the finals. But do we like that kind of thing? As fans, do we like the fact that there is a team that we can admire because they're that good, even though we may be cheering for a different team? Do we like when the New York Yankees are spending $200 million a year on, actually be more than that now, on contracts, when they go out and buy all the best players? Do we like... the Now, again, the Yankees, we probably don't because the Jays are in their division and most people around here are Jays fans. But I mean, look, the Los Angeles Dodgers are in the World Series this year. I think their payroll is two hundred and thirty or two hundred and forty million. They have a starting pitcher who's going to be starting in Game One, who's making over thirty million dollars a year. He's making basically a million dollars every time he starts. So is David Price in Boston. So, so is David Price, absolutely. But do we like when we have those super duper teams, no matter what league it is? You really nailed it. You love it if it's your team. Yeah. Like if the Toronto Raptors were that good. If they got... They would be hated by everybody because they're the only Canadian team. It's like when the Blue Jays won back-to-back World Series. I'm sure there's owners going, we're going to kick the Canadian team out. This is bad for business. Well, and don't forget, when the Blue Jays won their World Series, it's all relative. They were Their payroll was something like 48 or $45 million. It was the biggest payroll in Major League Baseball, and they had stars. I remember watching the sports news on TV one night in the off season back then when 
you expected this kind of thing, and they announced Dave Stewart was joining the Blue Jays. And he's joining now Paul Molitor, who's coming to join the Blue Jays, and Ricky Henderson, who had Brought Ricky Henderson in for the fun of it. So steal a few bases. So, but yeah, back then that was great, wasn't it? Great, that so, was fantastic. I don't mind dynasties as long as they're built in the right way. If you're just going to go out flat out and buy them, well, I think that's that. It's a little, it's it's a little harder pill to swallow. Like the National Hockey League, I think have it right. You know, you've got to draw. You can't. You basically can't win unless you've drafted some of your own homegrown talent. Because, because they've you got can't a hard buy cap. Them. Yeah, they've got a hard right. cap. The NBA has a salary cap. It's just that nobody can understand it. Nobody knows what it means because oh, yeah. you can circumvent it and you can pay taxes. Sign and, and trades. All the kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of ways that you can get around the NBA salary cap and keep all. There's, look, in the NHL, you could never build a team like the Golden State Warriors. Not anymore. Not well, anymore. No, that's what I mean. You can't do it. I mean, you haven't been able to do it since the salary cap era. No, you couldn't do it. You could not have a team with arguably three of the very best players in the league. Imagine in the NHL if you decided that your uh, team this year was going to have Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid, and Austin Matthews on a forward line. You couldn't do it because there's pretty much your entire or three-quarters of your entire salary cap tied up in three guys, and you can't fit the rest of the guys in. That's why that's why there's probably twenty teams in the NHL that could win the Stanley Cup. And we have to decide if that's the kind of league you like or or, or the system for basketball and baseball. Who can go out they can go out and do whatever they want. It's all uh, it's all budget based. If the Yankees are bringing in five hundred million and they decide to spend half of it on players, then I guess they do. And if the uh, Milwaukee team the Brewers are bringing in ninety six thousand and pay forty two. Guess what's going to happen? They're going to get waxed. It's it, it. I love I my feeling. My general feeling on this is I like it when you can build the super teams. I like the dynasties generally. I, generally, I like the dynasties. I liked it when Tiger Woods was winning most of the golf tournaments. Not that I'm a big Tiger Woods fan, but he made it interesting. Who was going to beat Tiger Woods? I liked it when. Uh, back in the 80s, I was a huge Los Angeles Lakers fan when they had Magic Johnson and Kareem and all those guys, and they were in it every year. I liked those games, those teams. And Larry Bird in Boston. You Larry know they Bird were in Boston, play. exactly. And Dr. J and Moses Malone in Philadelphia, and but the it, Detroit Pistons, and then the Chicago Bulls. You had these super teams, but it is, it, Don, it, it, at times, especially then if you're a Blue Jays fan, and you look down the road and see the Yankees or the Red Sox going and spending money like there's no tomorrow, and the Jays office doesn't want to do that, you say, well, no, we don't like it that you can't ever beat those teams. And yet the Jays spend a ton of dough. Yeah, but, but relatively still 75 speaking, million behind. That's right. That's right. Relatively speaking, yeah. like if you if the Blue Jays' salary today, I don't even know what it was this year, but let's say $150 million. If they had spent $150 million 10 years ago, they'd be the biggest team by double. Oh. By double. And they would be the Yankees, and they could and they could go and buy David Price, and that didn't work. The Yankees used to do that; they'd go sign a guy like David Price, give him thirty four million, and if it didn't work out, they'd put him the sideline and say, "We're going to bring you out of the pen." Oops, yeah, oops, oops. or yes. I mean, the the Yankees used to have when they were spending two hundred and fifty million, they had thirty five million dollars worth of mistakes hanging around. And you know, the funny part about this is. You don't necessarily love those teams. I don't think, other than by their fans, the Yankees weren't beloved because you were like, yeah, they're just the big bullies who spend their way to success. They were easy to hate. But, but the flip side is that 
three years ago, is it three years ago now, when the Kansas City Royals got into the World Series, they hardly spent any money, and they were even easier to hate. <laughs> they they were they were you, you just got the sense that there was this attitude almost with Kansas. More people I think hated those years Royals than hated the Yankees a lot of the time. So it's not just based on the money. It, that's just I, I would sooner let leagues. I would sooner have no salary cap, quite honestly, in any league, and let them let let the market sort itself out. Let them let them figure it out. And you want to know something? If the Yankees want to spend seven hundred and fifty million dollars on salaries, and they can afford it. Okay. Okay. Well, they bring uh, owners bring salary caps in first of all so they can make money. But second of all, they do it to protect them against themselves. Yeah. To of giving a guy that's 37 that scored 50 4 years ago an absorbent amount of money thinking he's going to catch lightning in a bottle again. And so then you get hamstruck with all those contracts and the Leafs, you know, they were spending a lot of money in the 90s. Now they didn't get the results out of it, but they were spending a lot of money in the, in the 90s. So Mostly, those salary caps are to protect them from themselves. To protect from their own stupidity. Yeah. Also, that the Toronto Maple Leafs wouldn't just annihilate the Carolina Hurricanes because they're selling the franchises for half a billion dollars now. But what's the difference between what the NHL used to have with the Leafs? We got to go with the Leafs annihilating the Hurricanes and the Yankees or the Dodgers spending the kind of money they are, and Milwaukee or Kansas City spending what they can afford to. There's no difference. No, there's no difference, but they wanted some parity. And the only way they could get parity, and do you think... And I cost mean, certainty. I mean, the Leafs, yeah, the, the the Leafs were probably kicking and screaming and everything else, and, and, and when they shut the door, they're high-fiving each other, saying, are you kidding me? You mean we got to put an extra $35 million in a bank this year? And Where the ima- guy that owns Carolina says, are you kidding me? I'm only going to lose $9 million this year. And can you imagine right now if the salary cap didn't exist in the NHL? Because the Leafs have enough prospects that they would go out and trade for a guy like the Leafs are playing the Kings tonight, and Drew Doughty is on the chopping block for on the yeah. trading block. They would have already traded for Drew Doughty. They would probably already have traded for John Tavares. Yep. And money's no object. And the Montreal Canadiens would be able to trade out of the mess they're in, or at least buy their way out of the mess they're in. It's it's a different league when you can't do that kind of stuff. It's really unfortunate what's going on with the Habs. Well, we'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Okay, you mentioned the Montreal Canadiens. Which surprises you more right now? The Montreal Canadiens being 1-7 and seven to start the season and Carey Price looking, frankly, terrible and they're having no offense and on and on. Or... The Vegas Golden Knights being six and one, which is a bigger surprise? Vegas. They uh, now for for half a billion dollars U.S., which is like seven hundred million Canadian. They did provide the opportunity at the draft to not hang them out to dry. Most expansion in pro leagues. Are you talking about the amateur draft or the expansion draft? Expansion draft. Yeah. They, um, well, both actually, but yeah. Well, they should have got first pick overall, but uh, in any event, the uh, you know they afforded them an opportunity to get some pretty good players. One of the best things that happened to them was uh, was the kid in Pittsburgh that became available, Mark Andre Fleury, who's now injured. Oh, was he? He's injured, and then they brought in Malcolm Subban, PK's brother, who was the next guy in line. Now he's injured. So they're down to their third string goalie, and they're still winning. That's the amazing part about this. It doesn't well, matter. They could put me in net, and they might still win. 
Okay. So. <laughs> Thanks for that vote of confidence. <laughs> I've seen you play. Yeah. Well, play is maybe a bad word. You have catalogs for goalie pads. They're mm. brown and old. It's I, look, I'm, I, I, I always like to say that I'm the safest goalie in hockey because the puck never hit me. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, gold, uh, the Golden Knights, I mean, you know, I think if they had started off 2-7, and seven, everybody said, well, you know, they're going to win a few games. They're, but, uh, you know, if George McPhee is planning on getting a good draft pick, he's going to have to fire his coach because the coaches go out to win, and now they're winning. What does this now, say, though, Don? What does this say, though, when you are looking at what they did? Now, it was by necessity because they could only take the players that were exposed to yep. the draft. But when they are able with the retreads that they've got there, and that's what they basically were, was mostly retreads. There were some, some good players, but they're yeah. not the stars. No. All right, Most of these guys that are on that team, the average hockey fan would not know. And they certainly wouldn't know them if they backed up their car and ran over them. They would not realize that it was that guy that they had just hit. They wouldn't. These are not star players, and yet they're doing well. And down the road in Arizona, where they've had how many years now to try and build something? They're one in a million right now. No, they're zero. They haven't won a game yet. I they're they're in one last, in seven. They're in last place in the league. They're awful. They've got some star players, or at least potential star players, and they can't win to save their life. What does it say about either how to win or is it just luck then? Or is it, I don't know what it is. And Phoenix can't draw enough people to have a game of bridge. I mean, so, they're, so they haven't won. I thought they'd won one. So they haven't won. They can't draw. The thing that I've always wondered about when Vegas came in the league. Now, first of all, let's address one thing. Let's, I'll address the second one because that's my thought. But they really didn't get to analyze your point a top six forward off any team. Vegas? Yeah. Well, they, like, they got from uh, from uh, Nashville. They got James Neal, who was a pretty good goal scorer, but that was that's where it ended. Yeah, but f- for the most part, the top six forwards were, were protected. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so some people left people exposed because it was for salary cap issues and contract issues and age issues and everything else. So you're right, they didn't get the cream of the crop. But somebody did some really good guesswork or awfully good uh, analytic work to say, if we do this, this is what might happen. But nobody starts with a great goaltender. Like Terry Sawchuk went to the L.A. Kings after the Toronto Maple Leafs won. Now, he was 75 years old at the time. Like he was a veteran guy at the end of the thing. But, I mean, that's what you got. You got... The guys that were at the end, Mark Andre Fleury, but Mar- nobody even thought Mark Andre Fleury was still a star, right? They, he didn't. No, but he could be a starter for... on more teams than yes. just uh, yes. the Vegas Knights. Yes. He's not I a just, plug. I just don't know that. There's no, Scott Radley. No, I just, I just don't know that anyone looked and said, "Hey, if we get Mark Andre Fleury, we're going to be." What did I say? They were six and one to start the year. I, I, I think they thought they might have had a chance to be competitive. But I don't think anyone was saying Marc Andre Fleury is the guy who will steal wins for you. Well, Marc Andre Fleury, I don't think you could have got anybody to bet you after six games would have more wins than Carey Price. No, and Montreal looks awful, and they've got a bunch of terrible contracts now, <laughs> and they've got guys who are going to be getting up there in years soon, and they can't score, and they don't have their. They're, we know too well here in Hamilton from watching the AHL Bulldogs when they were the Hamilton Farm or the Montreal Farm Team. They've got terrible development. 
how Sylvain Lefebvre, who's a nice man, but is now in his fifth or sixth year with the farm team and has yet to produce one significant player for the Canadians, not one, how he is still their farm team head coach is beyond me. They've got nothing on the farm. They've got nothing coming up. This t- Montreal Canadiens look, honestly, like it's amazing how screwed they look for the foreseeable future. Unless Carey Price returns to form and wins every game single-handedly. And that's probably what happened in Montreal. You know, you get a false sense of security because you've got the best goaltender. And they can only carry you so far. And you get to the point, and we had that with Mike Mole, Mike Mole two years ago. The only way we were going to win is if our goalie could score, too. And Carey Price, you know, um, is not going to get a lot of goals for him this year. And, now and if he's, he's not, and he's struggling a bit, and if he's not at his right. absolute best, you have no chance. Have no chance. No. And really? I just you you wonder, you hope if you're if you, we got to go to the break, but if you're the Montreal Canadiens, you have got to simply hope that Carey Price is just in a little career blip right now. He's just in a little lull, and that Carey Price somehow has not peaked. But, didn't and they is, think Carey Price didn't get along with the last coach, though? Who knows? But it, uh, yeah, oh yeah. But it's it's right. You just hope that the, there are guys who hit a certain age. Now he's not over the hill by any stretch. He's not into his thirties yet. But you hope that he has not peaked and somehow that the best years are behind him. You, and I don't I don't expect that's the case at all. I think he's struggling right now. But man, if Carey Price does not rebound to be one of the absolute best goalies or the best goalie in the league, they got no chance. They may be looking at. Whoever their GM, it won't be Bergevin next spring. They may be looking at having someone walk up there and say, with the first overall selection in the 2018 NHL draft. And I I don't think they thought that was coming. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There are things that you read occasionally that just make you shake your head. And this is one of them. The Biloxi, Biloxi Mississippi School District... And it's not the only one that has discussed this, by the way, but it may be the first to actually go through with it, I'm not sure, has decided that it is pulling To Kill a Mockingbird from its curriculum. And why is it doing this? Now, first of all, before I get to why it's doing this, I hope that most of you have read To Kill a Mockingbird, or at the very least seen the movie with Gregory Peck. I hope most of you have experienced that. But if you have, assuming you have, most of you, you know what it's about, You know what the contents are. You know what the story is. So why is To Kill a Mockingbird being pulled from the curriculum in this school district? Because, and here's the quote. Remember this one. These three words are, to me, the part that just makes you shake your head. At least it does for me. The reason To Kill a Mockingbird is being pulled from the school district is because it, quote, makes people uncomfortable. You know, I, I don't I don't know that that was intended to be ironic. I don't know that it was supposed to be that way. But the entire purpose of To Kill a Mockingbird is to make people uncomfortable. The entire reason Harper Lee wrote that book in the way she did was to make people uncomfortable. I don't know if the, somehow the people in Mississippi in this school district have missed that point. In a very ironic twist, they've fallen for the very thing that they're trying to protect against. But the whole reason you read To Kill a Mockingbird is to be made uncomfortable. Specifically about racism. It's very clear. There's no, 
nobody reads To Kill a Mockingbird for a bunch of chuckles. It is a book that is a lesson. It's a book that has a meaning. It's a book that is exceedingly well done. It's a, it's a brilliant story told by a fantastic writer. But it's meant to make you uneasy. And so for a school district then to turn around and say, the reason we can't have this is because the book has actually succeeded beyond its wildest expectations is just goofy. But here's, here's why this is... Oh, and there's a second thing. This is before I get to the biggest problem with this. And I'm sure you can guess it already. But believe it or not, there was a, uh, an opinion piece that was written and apparently published on NBC somewhere on one of their web pages. And this, I just, I, I'm, boy, I really scratched my head. Now, the story, by the way, for those who don't know, for the f- five people out there who've never expo- been exposed to To Kill a Mockingbird, the story, in short, because it's a longer story and there's a lot of twists and everything else, it's really about Atticus Finch, who is a town lawyer in Dust Bowl era, I think it's Alabama. Now I'm even forgetting at this time, but in the American South. And he has two children. And it's their story of them as children in the summertime, seeing their father defend. And remember, this is a dust bowl, so racism was still very rife in that part of the world. Defend for free, basically, a local black man against false accusations that he raped a white woman. So their father, Atticus Finch, the hero of this story, in a racist world, ignores the color of the man he's defending, who he believes to be telling the truth, and clearly is, against a white accuser. Uh, It pushes all kinds of buttons, but it pushes all the right kinds of buttons that we should be learning from this kind of stuff. But this NBC opinion piece, actually, in supporting the ban, doesn't support it because there may be some words in this book that we find uncomfortable now supports it for a whole different reason that I never saw coming but apparently this is now something else that we have to consider it believes that To Kill a Mockingbird should be taken out of circulation with school boards because this story will teach young people that women who report rape and sexual assault lie because in this story the woman who makes the allegation against Tom Robinson, against the black man, is making it up. So now we've got all kinds of things that are making people uncomfortable, I guess, that we can't have this book because it's telling stories that we don't want to hear. Well, every time something like this comes up, I have to ask myself, when when did it become part of our existence, part of our reality, part of our life, that we have this belief that we are entitled to go through life without ever being offended or made uncomfortable. I don't understand. I don't know when this happened. I don't know when we reached the point where someone said, I have a human right to avoid offense. And if you think that people don't say that, you're wrong. They do. They, there are lots of people who somehow think that it is a violation of their dignity, of their rights, of their whatever, if someone offends them, if something that is said bothers them, if something that is said or expressed by someone else 
challenges their philosophies, their beliefs, their mores, their their positions, whatever it is, I there are people who truly believe that they are entitled and allowed and expected to be able to go through life offense-free. And I don't know when that happened, but it's a terrifying, terrifying position for a society to be in. It really is. For someone to say that that this belief that is going around or that, that some people have that you should be able to live your life in a bubble of comfort that is never challenged. This is what's happening on university campuses in many cases right now. We have speakers that come to universities and people protest and say, no, we do not want to not listen to them. We don't want to not go to their speech. That that would be okay because nobody should be able to say, hey, listen, someone is coming and you must, well, maybe there's some times for that to happen, but generally we don't want to say you have to go and listen, but if it's a voluntary thing, but we have a lot of cases now where we have all over North America, we have people come on university campuses and rather than simply saying, I will not attend that because I don't believe, I don't like to hear what they're saying. These are people saying, I will prevent Not only am I not going to go, but you shouldn't be allowed to hear it either. And why shouldn't you be allowed to hear it? Because the things that that person may say are offensive to me. Well, you're not going to go. doesn't matter. What they say, what they stand for, what they mean is offensive to me. Therefore, those words should not be allowed to be uttered on my campus, in my place which is why we now end up with these ridiculous safe spaces on university campuses. It's why when Donald Trump won the last election, there were legitimate, big-time, major U.S. universities that were having quiet rooms with therapy puppies and coloring books, and I'm not making this up, I wish I was, so that people could go and deal with their pain because something happened to them that they don't believe in and they have no control over, and what can we do about this? I don't know how to handle, because I've I've never had to be offended before, because everywhere I've gone in my life, people have told me I don't have to be offended. I don't have to have something that challenges me. Therefore, now when it happens and it's out of my control, I have no capacity to be able to deal with this. And I I really believe that a big chunk of this is our own fault. In fact, all of it is our own fault. And I'm speaking to myself as well as a parent of kids who fall into the category of the generation that we traditionally called the millennial generation. I hope I have not done this as poorly as I believe some others have, but we remember once upon a time, we were told those of us of a certain age, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm just a complete old guy, but we were told sticks and stones may break your bones, but what? But names will never hurt you. And that is, you know, some people argue with that. But essentially what that meant was if someone calls you a name, if someone says something to you that's offensive, if someone says something to you that bothers you, you have the choice to not let it offend you like that. You have the choice to let it go. We now tell kids, we now say to people, 
If someone says something to you that offends you, you are a victim. Therefore, you those words victimize you and you have no capacity yourself to deal with those thoughts or those things because that's a you are the victim. Someone has done something to you. We have not given a lot of our kids the capacity, the lessons to say, someone calls you a name, who cares? Shrug it off. And I'm not talking about bullying, okay? I'm not talking about... This is not talking about someone who at school is constantly, constantly bullying or going after a kid, constantly putting them down, constantly challenging them, those kind of things. Those, that's, a, that's a different scenario. But these days, we are referring, if someone criticizes a kid once, we're calling it bullying sometimes. That's not bullying. It may not be nice. It's not bullying. We've removed the ability, it seems, from a lot of people to be able to say, you know what, you can say what you want to say. It doesn't matter to me. It makes no difference to me. I may not like it. I may disagree with it. It may not be pleasant. You may be a jerk. But you're allowed your thought. I'm allowed mine. I disagree with you. I'm going to let it go. But we've taken that away from kids. And we've now created this thing where we are victims. If anything is said to us that offends us or bothers us, we're victims. And if you're a victim, how do you deal with that? You can't deal with that. I'm a victim. So rather than being capable of hearing other people's or challenging points of view, rather than being able to read a book that would have something in it that would bother us, rather than being able to read chapters of a book and a storyline that would really offend us, though, as I said off the top, it was supposed to offend us. That's the whole purpose of this. Rather than be able to do those things and say, you know, at the end of it, I get, I get why I was offended. I'm glad I was offended. This is a lesson to me. I read this book. I was horribly offended by some things and Think to yourself, okay, why was I offended by this? Rather than saying, I am not allowed to be offended, I can't handle offense, I am not cut out or physically or mentally or emotionally capable of dealing with something that offends me, we say, that offended me, why did it offend me, and what am I going to do to make sure that those things change? I heard someone the other day, say the answer to being offended, the answer to people saying things that are mean or hate speech or those kind of things is not to ban speech. The The answer to hearing uncomfortable topics is not to ban those topics. It's more speech. It's more discussion. It's if you want to overwhelm an idea, if you disbelieve or, or disagree or disapprove of an idea, the way you get rid of that, the way you overwhelm it is by just that, overwhelming it. More people saying things that are the opposite. So if someone in your circle is racist, nobody wants to hear racist talk. Nobody, I don't, I don't think, not many anyway, not around here. But if someone in your circle is racist and makes racist comments... Rather than banning their comments, rather than banning them, everyone else around them overwhelms them with the opposite. And eventually that person either shuts up because they realize they're wrong, or they shut up because they reason they're being shouted down, or they shut up because 
they realize that it's not impressing anyone to 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 tell them you are not allowed to speak you are not allowed to say your words doesn't get rid of the thoughts it just buries them and I'm, so i'm reading this this reading this story that we now want to ban or some people want to ban get rid of take to kill a mockingbird out of the curriculum because it is it makes some people uncomfortable what good book doesn't make somebody uncomfortable in one way or another most of the great books most of the great movies most of the great plays most great art makes people uncomfortable or makes some people uncomfortable we're 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 on the very edge of something very slippery and very dangerous. We really are. We really are because as soon as and this is why I bring this up because there will be some people who will say, "You know what? In that book, they use the N-word." Well, yes, they do use the N-word in that book. It is historically true of a certain time and place. And part of seeing that really, I think if you are someone who doesn't either use that word hopefully or have people around you who don't use that word hopefully it is shocking when you see it it makes the point we don't do this we don't talk like this we see the problem with that this book illustrates to us and makes abundantly clear to us why we don't use words like that but if you say okay you know what we're going to take this one away well then you know what i guarantee you that there's going to be another book that's in the library or in the curriculum that offends somebody else. Maybe not the same number of people, maybe not the same people, maybe more people, maybe fewer, I don't know. But if you take this one away, you're going to have to take the next one away that makes someone else uncomfortable. And you know what? Then there's going to be another book that makes someone else uncomfortable. And what's the... What is the number of people being uncomfortable that you need in order to get rid of a book? Is it five? How do you, how do you set that standard? Is it 10? Is it a hundred? Is it one? Well, you know, in our society, every single person is important. We like to say that. And it's true. It's true. But does that mean then that if one person expresses discomfort with a book, with a movie, with something that's on the curriculum, if, if one person expresses that they are uncomfortable, does that book have to be taken out of circulation? Huh. So now you say, well, that's fine. Let's get rid of the books that make people uncomfortable. That's fine. Well, stop for a second again and think about what that means because it does. it's not a one-way street. So you may say, yes, this book uses the N-word. I find this disagreeable. I find this uncomfortable. I don't believe, even though it makes a point that would help us if we read it and pay attention to it, become better people, I don't think it should be in the curriculum. I think what we should have in this is this book instead. But then someone else says, well, no, no, no. Your book makes me uncomfortable. Now it has to go. Pretty soon, there is literally nothing left that hasn't made one person uncomfortable that we can actually still use or study from or talk about or reference. These are, this, is, this is why this is so dangerous. Because the inevitable outcome, the inevitable end result of banning books, of censoring people's discussion, of choosing who is allowed to say what and what they're allowed to say and who is not allowed to speak, the inevitable end to that 
is that something will always offend everyone. Therefore, there can be nothing that we can use, that we can read, that we can talk about. But we're not going to go to that end because that would be stupid. Which means then that we have to have somebody decide. And who gets to decide? Well, now, do you understand where I'm going with this? Now you end up with one or two people or a faction of a government office or someone else who is determining what is okay for us to read and what is not okay for us to read. And if you can't see the problem with that, you're missing the point entirely. Because that government agency or that official person with the school board or whomever else, that might be fine when the person, when the party who is in office shares your political views. But we know the pendulum swings in politics. And then what happens when the governing party, the governing person is someone you disagree with, but now their people are in office saying, oh no, these are the books that we're allowed to have. These are the books we're not allowed to have. This is not a road we want to go down. So to the people in Mississippi, who I guarantee you are not listening, but hopefully some people up here, if the topic ever came up, if this were to ever come up at our school board, if this were to ever come up in one of our school boards to say, we are debating whether or not to get rid of a book, not because we don't see that it serves a purpose. Uh Uh-uh. We're thinking of getting rid of a book because it makes us uncomfortable. Hopefully some people up here would do better at standing up and saying, yeah, we're on a slippery, slippery slope if that's the case. I just, I, I, I'm not surprised that this is happening. I'm not surprised that there are people who want to get rid of this book. I'm just frankly surprised. I'm surprised that we've reached the point where people are acquiescing to it. Because go back two decades, three decades, go back to Ronald Reagan, go back to, or anyone else around that time, doesn't have to be Reagan, I'm just thinking of the 80s, when we looked at what was happening in Russia with the communists, with everyone else, and we said, well, we could never have that here. We would never allow a government to make decisions for us like that. We'd never allow... We would have, we're free. We have freedom here. We don't get told what we're give, We're doing it to ourselves now. And this is the start. And hopefully it's only the, I mean, hopefully it's not the start. Hopefully it's the finish as well. But my goodness, when I read this, I just, it makes me sad. It makes me sad because this is the latest thing. The university campuses with speakers being shouted down, protests in the States at a free speech event. You don't have to agree with what the person is saying. That's what we seem to be missing here. Nowhere in the rule book does it say that you are permitted or expected to go through life without ever being offended. But we've somehow come to that agreement or that belief that I am allowed, I should be expecting that I will go through life in a bubble of comfort that will never challenge me. And anyone who challenges me must be wrong. And what they say must be evil. And if it's evil, it must be stopped. And if it's stopped, then I never have to be facing it again. Until the next thing that offends me. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHI.